Well, good morning, and uh, while you turn to James chapter 1, while you turn there, uh, I'd like to thank Scott Bogard for last week. For the past two weeks I've been out, Scott did a phenomenal job last week of filling in and teaching the Word of God. Also, Mr. Jerry White, he uh, filled in two weeks ago, so just appreciate you guys. Thank you for stepping in and filling that role and teaching the Word and upholding God's Word and His truth. Also, Scott, thank you for this podium. Don't know where it came from, uh, but I heard it was well used last week, and I'm going to try to get used to it. Feels, um, maybe we need to paint it or something. Uh, but I appreciate that, Scott. Uh, turn with me to chapter one of James, and we're going to run through it real quick and just kind of recap James's thought throughout chapter one and give you an overview of what he means and how we end and how he's going to end this section. And it's so beautiful how he ends it. But he starts it off in verse 1. He starts off and he talks about the perseverance of our faith. The perseverance of our faith in the times of suffering. And we know that if we're followers of Christ, without a shadow of doubt, if we are following Christ, if we are seeking Christ, there is no doubt that suffering will happen. There is no doubt you as a Christian will find yourselves in a position where you're suffering for the sake of the gospel. And that's okay. That's a good thing. And so James starts, James starts off and he says this in verse 2. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or patience or steadfastness. And let your endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, mature, complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. God has said to us, to his people, consider it joy for this reason, because I have put you on display to the world through your suffering. Because the world longs to see how we react to the sufferings of this earth. And do we put our hope and our joy and our peace in what the world has to offer? Or what Christ has to offer? Do we fix our eyes on Christ, our Lord and Savior? We fix our eyes on the things of this world. So James says, consider it all joy, my brother. Consider it all joy. For it will make you perfect, complete, and mature. And then James goes on, and he can't, commands us to ask for wisdom. And I challenge you today, please take this script. Don't take it lightly. Please, as it says in the, in the, in the Word, that he commands us to ask for wisdom. He has all wisdom, all understanding, and yet we seem to lean toward the latest book or the latest show on advice on how to live in this world. Seek the Father. Seek the one who has all knowledge and wisdom. And James commands that us to seek that. And so we don't doubt in our sufferings. So we don't waver and become unstable. But we persevere. Look at me at verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Persevere. Persevere. For the things of this world do not matter. Set your joy on the things to come. And then we get into this, the next section, and, and 
and our faith is really challenged in the midst of temptation. And James says this in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. And we learn that that's a preposition there. The word by is a preposition. It comes before the noun or pronoun and describes the noun or pronoun. And so this word by here, it has two different meanings. It has a meaning of of or from, but with the indentation or the, the, the idea that it is either from a distance or that it is, is close and personal. And so what James is saying here, he says that, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. He's saying that in no way, no shape or form can God tempt you. God it has no part in evil. And I know we've, we've been taught that he, that he has maybe in some way. But God cannot exist with evil. He cannot. And so James wants us to understand that, in, that God in no way, indirectly or directly, is involved in our temptation. He is not. And so where does this come from? That's the question. Where does this come from then? And James answers that clearly. He says it comes from inside. Our own fleshly lust. Our own desire. And he talks about the nature of evil and how it has that, that Christ or God is aware of it, but He's untouched by it. And he talks about the nature of man and how our own evil desires, that they give birth to deception. And that our deception in our own mind allows us to be disobedient, that we deceive ourselves, we somehow justify our actions because it feels right, it feels good in the moment. And because of our disobedience to the Scripture, that that leads to death. It leads to death. Spiritually, physically. And then he talks about the nature of God. He says, all good and perfect gifts come from above. Father of life. This is good. This is good because we can focus on God and His character and who He is. And we can rest that He is good, that He is Lord, and that He is Savior. And that when we are in the midst of trials and temptation, that we examine ourselves. And we don't blame God. But that we pursue God. And we pursue what is good and righteous. And then we see our response to the Word and faith. And we listen to James' encouragement and his instruction to the Jewish Christians who have been dispersed, who have been removed from their home. As you imagine the anger that's built up inside of them. And James says this in verse 19. He says, This you know, my brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The anger of a man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word and plant it, which is able to save your soul. Prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who are deluding who are deluded themselves. And James goes on to speak about the man who looks in the mirror and walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And here's the key to that analogy. Here's the key to what James is saying when he's talking about the mirror. 
that the faithful hearer and the doer of the word does not study the mirror itself, but he studies rather what the mirror exposes. That's what James wants you to hear. You don't want us just to study the word for itself because we get into this, this list of do's and don'ts. But we want to see what it reveals about who we are. That's what James wants. That's our response to the word in faith. So don't just be doers. Don't just be those who study the mirror, but rather what the mirror reveals about us. Then we come into the last part of chapter 1. And I think James saves the best for last. I think it's a beautiful transgression. It's a beautiful progression of the Scripture that leads into verse 26 and verse 27 is where we'll put our focus today. And I love what David Platt writes in response to this section. He says this, True and acceptable religion must include controlled speech, sacrificial care for the needy, and a clear separation from the world, all as a manifestation of faith expressing itself through love. Wow. I know it's a lot, a lot in there. But I think James is going to break that down for us. And he's going to redefine religion for you and I. Let's look at verse 26. It says, If anyone thinks he himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so verse 26 discusses bad religion. It's talking about what it looks like to have bad religion or worthless religion. And so in verse 26 it says, If anyone thinks to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. There's two forms of the Greek word in the New Testament for religion. One meaning refers to the external rituals. The other one, meaning holy or godliness. James here is talking of the first, and he says this. He says that in such things, in our routine, in our ceremonies, in our traditions, in our attending service, going to church events, going to home groups, being volunteers, going on mission trips, having the right theology, serves no purpose. Serves no purpose at all if it's all about you. If it's all about you, I'm saying this is worthless. It's worthless. It has no meaning. And the person who puts their trust on the outward things later will be exposed. Listen to the scripture. It says, You will be exposed. It says, The one who thinks he himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but succeeds his own heart, this man is worthless. And how will we be exposed? By our speech, by our tongue. We can only fool people for so long. We can't uphold this weight and this facade of Christianity and it not become real to us. We will be exposed. We will be exposed. Why will we be exposed? 
because you do not have the power of the Holy Spirit in you who bridles our tongue. I don't know about you, but Jason's tongue is not bridled by Jason, but by the Holy Spirit, by his power, by his conviction, by his strength. Because the world in me, the flesh in me, can be ugly. Can be selfish. Can look like the world real quick. So we must lean on the power of the Holy Spirit who bridles our tongue. And so forth, he deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. Look what Jesus told the self-righteous Pharisees in chapter 12 of Matthew. Matthew 12, verse 33. He said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brought a vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of the of which is filled of the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasures what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasures what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak they shall give an account for it, and in the day of judgment, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Religion that does not transform the heart, does not completely transform our heart, is worthless. It is worthless in the sight of God. And see, the problem with the church is, is that for years we've been teaching pragmatically. We've been teaching practically. And so we've been teaching on this list of do's and do not. And so our faith has been built on pragmatics. And so we feel like when we've achieved these do's and do nots, we've done well. We look religious. We feel good about who we are. I did not cuss. I did not drink. I did not have sex before marriage. It's this do and do not. And so we're building ourselves into a pragmatic system, which is moral, moralistic deism. It, it, it does not fit. Never, ever has the Word taught a foundation that is built on pragmatics. It's built on grace. It's built on grace and love. Selfishness. So that's why Jesus commands us to love the Father and love people. All those things are removed. When we really focus in on that, our pragmatic lifestyle is natural. It's a natural flow. I don't have to wake up and look at my checklist on what I should or should not do. But I follow after Christ. I surrender my life to Christ. And I walk in obedience with the Spirit daily, daily. That has made me perfect. But it weeds out. It weeds out all the legalistic lifestyle that we tend to be about. We live in a life that is free. It's free of the Spirit of God in us. And so James says it's worthless. It's worthless. Verse 26, I just want to read it again, and then we'll move into verse 27. It says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, remember that word, external. We picture ourselves on achievement. 
and yet does not bridle his tongue and deceive his own heart. And a man's religion is worthless. Here's the good news. Pure religion. That which is godly and holy. is the gospel. Here is the second response to the religious person. One is either good or one is bad. Listen in verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God the Father is to serve them with love and compassion. Jesus says this in John 13. He says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Pure and undefiled religion. And that word pure and undefiled, it's the synonyms. Synonyms are words that are um, have the like, uh, same meaning, but are a little different. And so pure in the Greek means this, means cleanliness. And undefiled means freedom from contamination. Freedom from our sin. So here's the simile. It says, when, the, when your religion is cleansed of, your, cleansed of yourself and you are free of your own motives, then and only then can you offer what is best in the sight of the Lord. Then and only then, when you have been cleansed and you are pure, you are undefiled, and you have been saved from your sin. And so, the greatest spiritual mistake that the scribes and the Pharisees have made over history has been to replace their standards with standards of God. Replace their thoughts and their religion with what God says. And listen what Jesus says in Matthew 15. He says, you invalidate the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Far from me. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be far from God because we replace our own thoughts and what we think religion should look like. And it's so simple. It's so simple. And so in verse 27, it goes on to say this. It says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Let's take this word to visit. In the Greek, it's a long word. It's eposcate to me. I don't know if I'm saying it right. It sounds good. Uh, but this is the word. Listen to it. It doesn't merely mean just to visit, to sit down and have coffee. You know? It's easy. It's just visit. How you doing? It means to take charge and take oversight over one. Wow, that's a little different, right? We don't walk into someone's house and be like, I'm about to oversee this project. Well, maybe some people do. I don't know. It's so unorganized. Uh, but what we're doing is, is that you're investing into these people. You're taking oversight because they're in need. It's not just a cup of coffee. So James says, go have oversight for these 
for the widows and for the orphans. And so I hope when we look at this, when we read this, when it says to visit, it's just not like, hey, let's show up and say, hey, and hope everything's gone right and we'll leave. But that we take oversight, that we invest, that we care for them. Because God cares for us. Listen to Jesus once again in Matthew 25. He gives us the perfect example. Matthew 25, verse 34. It says, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. For I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. It's a visit in a way that is pleasing to God our Father. It's to meet the best possible needs of all orphans, widows, and those in distress. That is pure and undefiled religion. That is gospel. Is the gospel. And so the question is here, why orphans and widows? Why why does James just settle in on orphans and widows and says we can take care of them and then of course all in distress? But why does he settle in? Why does he name orphans and widows? But generally in that time in New Testament time, the orphans and widows were probably the most needy. There wasn't a life insurance policy. There wasn't welfare. There wasn't these type of things that could take care of them. And then, of course, today, when we think of modern day, now, it's the same. There's not a lot out there to help take care of orphans and widows. We just saw a film that was, wow, I, mean, I don't know what to say, but there's not much out there. So they're in need. They're the neediest in both societies today and then. And so apart from that, apart from someone selfishly meeting their needs, there's nothing. There's nothing. And God has a special place in His heart for the orphans and the widows. And we see that throughout Scripture. David affirms that and he says this in Psalm 68, 5. He says, A father to the fatherless, a judge for the widows, is God in His holy inhabitation. And the Mosaic Law included in the instructions in Exodus 22, it says, You shall afflict. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. And then in Deuteronomy 14, we read, At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithes of your produce in that year, and you shall deposit into the town, the Levites, because they have no portion or inheritance among you. And the aliens and the orphans and the widows who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due to aliens, orphans, and widows, and all the people shall say. And then Jeremiah 7, 5 says, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do oppose the aliens and the orphans or the widows, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after the gods of your own womb, then I will let you dwell in the place and the land that I give you and your fathers forever. And then I love 1 John. 1 John 4 says this, The love, let us love one another. For the love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
And the one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. And by this love, God was manifested in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this love, not that we love God, but that He loved us first and sent His Son to be our propitiation for sin. The love God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. And if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So why orphans and widows? Listen to what one author writes. This true Christianity is manifested from a pure and loving heart by the way believers talk and by the way they act. It is manifested by how the love and care for those who are in need, not by how they love and care for those they prefer. Hear that? Not how they love and care for those they prefer. Those who are close to them or those whom they share common trait or interest. Love is to be central and most visible manifestation of salvation. It's to visit. It's the oversight. It's not what we have common. It's easy to go sit down in a house with someone. We have similarities. We have interests. We can talk about the game, talk about life. And those things are good and those things are healthy. I'm not saying that. What James is saying is that there's, a, there's another group of people that we, the church, must take oversight, that we must visit, that we must put on our list to serve selflessly. Not with motives that glorify ourselves, but motives that glorify who God is. And so I love First John. It makes it clear that the love for God cannot separate love from others. It cannot be separated. We cannot love God and not love others. Especially fellow believers. And so I would challenge you as a professing Christian, as a saint, as believers, as disciples of Christ, that if you do not show compassion, that if you do not show compassion, for the orphans, the widows, and all in distress, that you should rethink your salvation. You should really rethink whether you follow Christ. We cannot separate the two. We cannot. And the Word clearly says in First John that truly redeemed hearts will reach out to others. They will serve others. Does that mean everyone packs up and heads in the mission field and serves orphans? No. Absolutely not. But that means that our heart breaks for those in need. Our heart breaks for those who need a Savior just as much as we need Him. They need love just as much as we need love. We cannot walk away from the Word of God and our hearts be calloused as believers. We cannot does not mix. Why? Because God the Father has sent His Son for the sins of the world when we were helpless, when we were fatherless, and He adopted us into a faith, into a family, into a kingdom that will last forever, ever. Amen? That's good. That's good. And that's something that we cannot keep in. Cannot keep him. 
because of this, we can truly live out a pure and undefiled relationship. We can walk in a way that oversees those in need, oversees those orphans and widows. So if we truly believe that Christ lives in us, if we truly believe that Christ dwells us, then we will be a people that care for others. We will be a people that care for the orphans and the widows and all that are in distress because we will understand what God saved us from and adopted us to. Let me pray. Father, God, we thank you for this word. Father, I pray that it just doesn't run through our minds and our thoughts and leave. Father, I pray that we don't have the mind that I've heard this, I understand. God, I pray that you convict our hearts. That you really search our hearts, God. And God, let us understand that we are a people for your own possession. And God, as a people of your own, that we learn to love like you love, to serve like you serve, to reach out to those who no one else will. Because we understand our position under the cross. We understand that you have adopted us, that you have called us your own, that you have saved us. And so us as believers, we cannot sit. We cannot sit and watch. That we must act. That we must love. We must live out the gospel to a world that needs it. So, Father, I pray that we've removed ourselves from this pragmatic way of thinking. That when we look at religion, we don't look at it as a checklist. But, God, we look at it as Christ looked at it. As Christ walked this earth. That we invest and love those close to us. But, God, that we're also aware of those around us that are in need our need of the gospel and the truth and the saving power. God, change us to be people that have hearts for others. Let us share the gospel every day of our life. In your name we pray.